Father in heaven, we just glorify your name. We praise you. We thank you. We honor you. We just worship you for the God that you are. Thank you, Lord, for this precious book that you have given to us. Thank you for the freedom we have in this country to assemble together, not only to fellowship with each other, but to open up your precious word, study it, and get to know you better. Thank you for the promises you have that we can live the abundant life in the here and now, and we can spend eternity with you in the hereafter if we accept the Lord Jesus Christ who died on our behalf for our sins. Father, we thank you for all that you teach us through this word about ourselves. It's a mirror we look into and we see ourselves and hopefully the Holy Spirit will be our teacher this morning as as we look at this lesson and may he convict us of anything that we might need to change in our lives, particularly our priorities. Father, I ask that you would now hide me behind the Lord Jesus Christ. May he increase, may I decrease, and may all that be said be for your honor and glory, for we pray in his name. Amen. When Eliezer, Abraham's old and faithful servant, had traveled to Upper Mesopotamia to find a wife for his master's son, Isaac, among Abraham's relatives, his prayers for guidance were abundantly exceeding abundantly answered he found an even better bride for isaac than he could have imagined her name of course was what everybody rebecca and when she readily declared that she would go with the servant to marry his master's son her family remember this in genesis 24:60, her family bid her goodbye with this particular blessing they said to her be thou the mother of thousands of millions however when Genesis 25 verse 21 picked up the story of Rebecca's marriage to Isaac we discovered that there was a problem what was that problem right Rebecca was barren she could not conceive children rather than becoming the mother of thousands of millions she couldn't even have one child Now, in our lesson last week, we learned that Isaac was very faithful to intercede for his wife. He was a picture of Christ interceding on behalf of his church. He was faithful to intercede on the behalf of Rebecca during her almost 20 years of barrenness, childlessness. When the Lord then took heed to answer not only Isaac's prayer, but of course his own will, because it was God's will that Isaac would have children so he could carry on the messianic line. So when he, when he did take heed and answer the prayer, Rebecca conceived. But the happiness that she must have then experienced in motherhood and finally being a mother was soon turned to an apprehensiveness as she realized that there was a strange struggle going on within her womb. Well, this was an unusual turmoil, and so she did the right thing. She went to the Lord to find out exactly what he was trying to tell her. And she learned from the Lord that uh, within her were twin sons who would be divided from birth. She was also told, what, that the elder would serve the younger. Let's read that verse. That was a very important prophecy from the Lord. Look at verse 23 of Genesis 25. It says, And the Lord said unto her, Two nations are in thy womb, and two manner of people shall be separated from thy bowels. 
and the one people shall be stronger than the other people, and the elder shall serve the younger. Indeed, from Rebekah's two sons, Esau and Jacob, would come two nations. One would be the nation of Edom, which is located uh, to the southeast of the Dead Sea, and would be the bitter enemies of the other, the descendants of the other son, Jacob. There, his descendants would form the nation of Israel. And those two, e- Edom and Israel, would be bitter enemies. They would continue to struggle with one another throughout the future centuries of history. It was the Edomites, if you remember, who um, refused passage through their land during Israel's wanderings in the wilderness. You know, they refused to let her pass through their land on their way back to Canaan. That was in Numbers chapter 20. And throughout the age of Israel's kings... There were always conflicts and problems and struggles and and battles going on between Edom and Israel. Then when Jerusalem fell to the Babylonians, you know, under King Nebuchadnezzar, the Edomites actually helped the Babylonians to cut off those Judeans who were trying to escape. And that very unbrotherly I mean remember these these two peoples came from brothers so that very unbrotherly animosity was written about quite bitterly by such prophets as Ezekiel and Obadiah and even the psalmist wrote about it it is predicted actually that eventually Edom will be destroyed forever and will actually become part of the kingdom of Israel. So it will be absorbed back up into the nation of Israel. They will become one in the end times. And you can read about that in Obadiah. You can also read about it in Malachi. So this then will be the ultimate fulfillment of the prediction that the elder would be the slave or the servant of the younger. Now, the struggle between the two sons of Isaac and Rebekah was evident even at the time... Whoops, I'm already getting behind here. Even at the time of their births. Because the second son emerged with his little infant hand grasping onto the heel of the firstborn son. In other words, Jacob was holding on to the heel of Esau. Tragically, then, the conflict was further aggravated by parental favoritism. Remember how we talked about that last week? Parental favoritism. It's not a good thing. (laughs) Isaac, who was a, a passive man of prayer, is discovered to have had a real taste for savory venison and that was the reason given to us why his love was more toward the eldest son Esau Esau who was described let's see in verse 27 as a cunning hunter cunning hunter and a man of the field he knew that his father desired this you know the game so he brought the father the game meat so that he so desired and and, um, kept feeding him to to gain his love and Isaac loved him the best a poor reason that is a very it was a carnal reason and on the other hand Rebecca the strong-willed active wife of Isaac and mother of the twins who did she favor she favored the younger son Jacob who took both the estate 
and the spiritual responsibilities of his family very seriously. So there was parental favoritism, and that did aggravate the conflict between the two boys. More evidence of the truth of the Lord's uh, pregnancy prophecy to Rebecca is then made evident, or is now made evident, by the next event which is recorded in the scripture regarding the twins, Jacob and Esau. And that event is what we look at in verses 29 to 34, and it has to do with a, a sinful swap made between the two brothers. And this is where we get the title for our lesson. The swap was beans for the birthright. Lentils that we'll be reading about. My husband looked it up in the dictionary, and it's described as like peas or beans. So I'm calling them beans because it starts... I didn't think peas for the birthright sounded as nice as beans for the birthright. So that's the title for our lesson. Now our outline, you can see, consists of just three main divisions in part one which i've entitled famished and faint 29 and 30 we're going to take a a look at esau as he comes in from the field one day and he smells and sees the red pottage of lentils that his brother is cooking and then in part two forthright and focused verse 31 we're going to hear the immediate proposition which jacob makes to his elder brother regarding the transfer of the birthright and we'll talk about what the birthright entails when we get to that section then in part three foolish and fatal verses 32 to 34 we're going to learn of esau's true spiritual condition as he agrees to swap the temporary and the perishing for the eternal and the and the lasting so let's begin part one famished and faint for this we're just going to look at verses 29 and 30 it says and jacob sod pottage that means he cooked it okay and esau came from the field and he was faint and esau said to jacob feed me i pray thee with that same red pottage for i am faint therefore his name called Therefore was his name called Edom. One day, we're told here, one day after the twin sons of Isaac and and Rebekah were young men, Esau came in from the field where he had obviously been busy uh, doing his favorite thing in the world, which was hunting. And his nose apparently led him straight to Jacob, who was boiling a pot of red lentils. And the aroma of that broth was simply overpowering to the uncontrollable hunger of Esau, who made a big point of expressing his utter exhaustion and his starvation. I think it was a little dramatic here, but made a big point of how totally exhausted and starving he was to Jacob. Now, how, when, and why Jacob made this stew of red beans is not really given to us. Whether this was a daily thing, you know, whether he always cooked lunch like this every day, we don't know. Whether he purposely made the red lentils, knowing that his brother might soon be coming in from the field and would be, maybe he knew this was one of his favorite foods and that he would be easily tempted by the food, we don't know that either. Perhaps God himself actually set the stage purposely for this open display of Esau's true feelings about spiritual matters by withholding game from Esau so that he was totally wearied, you know, out there in the fields looking for game. 
um, and was hungry enough to eat his own hat, so to speak. So maybe God set the stage by allowing Esau not to get anything when he was out hunting. That's what a lot of commentators speculate anyway, that he didn't get anything and he was out there for a long time, and so he came back just totally hungry. But whatever the situation might have been, what we do know is that this incident, just as predicted by the Lord, would widen the division between the brothers, and it would begin to show how the younger brother would start to rule over the elder brother. So the cunning hunter... Esau came in from the field and he was faint and famished. His pursuits in the world, now the world is represented by the field. He came in from where? He came in from the field. That symbolizes the world. His pursuits in the world, although very exciting and appealing to his pride, did not satisfy, right? He was out in the world doing the carnal things of the world, but how did he come back? Empty. He came back faint and famished. He came back empty. And this is exactly the way it is for those who are ruled by their flesh. For a moment of gratification, they will forfeit the hope, the one and only hope that truly Satisfies the hope of eternal glory, which is available only in the person, the Lord Jesus Christ. Because the promises of God are not immediately fulfilled. You know, we live in a instant gratification. That's what I was looking for. We live, you know, a microwave society. We want it now. So if people are not immediately fulfilled, you know, the promises of God are not always immediate, are they? A lot of them, most of them will be fulfilled in the future. So they, they discard them. You know, they, they want their satisfaction now. So the promises of God are discounted. You know, the scoffers mock, where is the promise of his coming? When the red stew was seen, it became the occasion, you see, of showing the true value that Esau placed on spiritual things. The flesh... After spending all its strength in worldly pursuits and endeavors, you know, following after one kind of pleasure or creature comfort or appeal to the flesh or pride of life or another, until it is quite exhausted and empty, will always, the flesh will always, sooner or later, discover that no matter how cunning, remember he was a cunning hunter, no matter how cunning he might be out in the flesh, in the field of the world, it it does not satisfy. It is not satisfied. The flesh in the world cannot be fully satisfied. Yet instead of then casting itself on God, the only source, the one and only source of true and lasting satisfaction, too, too often its sense of emptiness, just think of people that are looking for fulfillment in the world. They realize that they're, they're, they're empty and yet... Uh, to fill that emptiness, they are drawn again to some temporary passing bait. And consequently, they forfeit the birthright. If Esau had used his time of exhaustion and emptiness to instead ask Jacob about the satisfaction that he seemed to have in the Lord, then everything would have been fine. 
But instead, Esau used his faintness as another occasion for his flesh, you know, to appease his flesh, his flesh and his self, and to choose his own remedy, which was another occasion to yet feed his flesh. So he was on a, a vicious, he was in a vicious cycle here. First smelling and then seeing the pottage or the stew or the broth or whatever you want to call it, which Jacob was preparing, Esau said to his brother, feed me, I pray thee, with that same red pottage, for I am faint. I colored his hair this week. Did you notice that? <laughs> the, the Hebrew... This is interesting. The Hebrew presents that request in verse 30 of Esau as very urgent. I'm sure you get that anyway. It was very urgent. The word for faint is a word in Hebrew which speaks of just total exhaustion. Like I said, he was being very melodramatic here. You know, he's just saying, I'm about to just perish. I am so weak. In fact, he was so exhausted that he was implying that he didn't even have the strength to feed himself. What does he ask Jacob to do? (laughs) Feed me, you know, like a baby, feed me. It actually uses the word swallow, you know, help me to swallow. And uh, we find that this really isn't true. He really wasn't that weak. He was exaggerating because when he does get his meal in verse 34, Jacob doesn't feed him, he feeds himself. Also, we notice, and the the Hebrew scholars point this out, that he was not too faint. Uh, This was rather a verbose request. Uh, And he wasn't too faint to ask in a polite manner. I mean, we've got to give the guy credit. He used the form of, of the word please when he said, I pray thee. That's the equivalent of saying please. Now, a really desperate man, you know, a man who was just absolutely about to perish from hunger, Do you think he would say, please help me to swallow some of the red stuff, this red stuff, because I am utterly exhausted and empty with hunger? No. What would a really desperate person say? Uh, You know, they'd get out one word, maybe. (laughs) Now, it's interesting to notice that in his request in the Hebrew, he does use the word red twice. You see, I have that up here. What was the word red in Hebrew? What is the word red? Edom, right, Edom. He uses that word twice. So essentially, that's what he's saying, what I put up there. Please help me to swallow some of the red stuff, this red stuff, because I am utterly exhausted and empty with hunger. That would be the direct translation from the Hebrew. Now, the double use of the word red implies that Esau was not only drawn to the food by its smell, but by what else? Its color. So, as we are told at the end of verse 30, this is why Esau was also named Edom, which means red. This is where he got his nickname, not only because he had red hair. Remember when he was born? (laughs) He looked like a little red baby animal because it says that he came out red all over like a hairy garment. 25, verse 25 there. Now, red in the Bible symbolizes... Several things. It symbolizes... What do you think of when you think of red? Huh? Blood, war, judgment. I mean, what's the color of fire, the lake of fire? Fire, you think of red. Well, it symbolizes primarily judgment, bloodshed, and war. You remember the apocalyptic rider, uh, the, the, um, the, the second horse of Revelation chapter 6? 
rider is on a red horse and and this rider brings with him great war and bloodshed to the world during the tribulation and satan himself is even described in revelation chapter 12 as the great red dragon see i was having a lot of fun with my red pen last night esau's overwhelming desire for this red stuff you see goes along with his character as a cunning hunter what do hunters do they kill they make a sport of killing and shedding blood also we'll find out later in verse 27 when he is deceived by his brother he gets very very angry and what do you associate with anger red You know, somebody gets red in the face when they're angry, and he actually wants to kill Jacob. That's why Jacob has to leave home and kill. Again, we associate that with red. So Esau is named red, and you can see he is really affiliated with the color red. So the stage was set for the one described as a cunning hunter to meet with one who was really more than his match when it came to hunting. Jacob was really the cunning hunter. Instead of a bow and a spear, however, he used a savory pot of red beans. And instead of hunting for wild game, Jacob hunted for his brother's birthright. And guess what? He got it bullseye. He was the cunning hunter. Let's look at that forthright and focused verse 31 it says and jacob said sell me this day thy birthright in hebrew that's only three words not verbose at all like his brother just three words in the hebrew that the two sons of isaac and rebecca represented entirely different sets of values is seen by the 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 first words that we ever hear from them in the bible Now, what were Esau's first words ever recorded in the Bible? Well, they were a desperate plea for what? A pot of red beans. He was very definitely an earthly-minded man. Jacob's first words, on the other hand, demonstrate that his focus was very much on eternal things. He immediately saw... Uh, his opportunity to strike while the iron was hot. Esau was salivating, you know, and his appetite was out of control. So what came from Jacob's mouth was that which obviously had been consuming the thoughts of his heart for a long, long time. Out of the abundance of the mouth, the heart, the mouth speaks. He desired to have the birthright of the firstborn son. So in what appears to be a calculated response, Jacob, who dispensed with politeness, notice he he didn't use anything polite like his brother had said when he had said, I pray thee. Jacob merely uh, presents his bargain. He says, sell me this day thy birthright. Now his behavior here, we have to admit, is not commendable. And if this scene dealt with any other matter other than the birthright, we could all agree that Jacob was really more of the rascal than Esau. After all, you know, what godly man 
would deny his starving brother a bowl of beans when he had plenty in the pot. However, because we are not dealing so much with what Jacob did as with what he desired, we have to conclude that Jacob was indeed by far the better of the two sons because he desired that which is eternal. His focus was on spiritual things, spiritual concerns. He was eager to be both the spiritual and the fatherly head of the next generation of God's covenant line. He wanted to carry on the line of the promised family, which would ultimately lead to who? The seed of the woman, Genesis 3.15. The one, the redeemer, who would come and crush Satan's head. He wanted to be in that lineage desperately. Now, although there is no record of what the birthright included at the time of Isaac and his two sons, we can feel sure, we do, we do know that it had to include becoming the spiritual head of the family. The son who received the birthright was to be the high priest of the family when his father was absent or when his father died. He would be God's representative for the family, the one who would be responsible for the spiritual welfare, not only of the family, but for all the household servants as well. And he would be the, the you know, the birthright son would be the one who would build altars um, and who would take make sure that the family worshipped God. The birthright also included the, the primary responsibility for the father's estate and his property and his business, you know, the business holdings of the family, as well as the responsibility of protecting the family and the estate. It may or may not have been put into effect at the time of Esau. We don't know for sure. But the birthright son also inherited a double portion of the father's wealth. And we know that this was definitely true by the time of the Mosaic Law. You can read about it in Deuteronomy and in First Chronicles. But it was probably also true at the time of our story as well. However, Jacob's desire um, was for the spiritual. You know, there was a lot of material aspects to the, to the inheritance, to the, birth, the birthright. But he was more focused on the spiritual aspects of the birthright. Any material benefit was not really that significant to him. I mean, after all, both sons had plenty from their father. Remember, their father is extremely wealthy because he inherited everything from Abraham, so neither one of them were in need at all. So they both had plenty. So really, there was nothing wrong at all with what Jacob desired. Actually, he desired exactly the same thing that God desired because God had already proclaimed that Jacob was the son he had appointed in order to receive the covenant promises. You know, and to carry on the godly line of Abraham and Isaac. That's what we read when we looked at verse 23. So I, uh, Jacob was only really desiring what God desired. There was something, however, that wasn't so great about the way that Jacob obtained the birthrate, birthright. What did he do? He acted on his own instead of entrusting God to work out the situation. His, his uh, proposal of beans for the birthright 
was a self-sufficient, running ahead of God type of situation. Who else had done that? Right, his grandfather and his grandmother, Abraham and Sarah, had done exactly the same thing when they got impatient with God. You know, they also desired what God desired. They wanted to have a son, but they got impatient, and uh, so they manipulated the situation, tried to help God out a little bit through Hagar. So he was doing exactly the same thing his grandparents had done. He was manipulating the situation to gain the birthright instead of waiting on God to get him the birthright in God's time and in God's way. Would God have arranged it somehow? Sure, he would have. Now notice Jacob's words this day. Again, we go back to the instant gratification. Got to have it now. He said, sell me this day thy birthright. He'd been consumed with this for a long time. He didn't want to wait one more minute, one more day, one more hour. He wanted it at once. I want it right now. Now we'll find that Jacob often resorted to acting. We're going to be spending a lot of time talking about Jacob. It will continue over into our study when we start up in the fall. But we're going to find that he often resorted to acting in a very self-sufficient and independent way, which led him to scheming and deceiving and conniving in order to gain what he wanted. He would have to learn through many trials to trust in God and to wait on God instead of trying to help God out. You know, by doing things his way, Jacob's way, and on Jacob's time schedule. That's something we all need to learn all of our lives, isn't it? Got to wait on God. He'll eventually do what we, whatever it is in our lives. We don't need to run ahead of him and try to do it for him. So Jacob would be forced to grow up, really, and mature very quickly. In fact, in just one night, Jacob would be forced to cast himself totally on the Lord and trust in his care and direction for his life. And that's what we'll discuss when we get to chapter 32 and we see how he wrestled with the angel of the Lord. Now, in spite, however, of his weaknesses, we can at least say that Jacob was forthrightly focused on spiritual things. And that's good. That's where we all want to be focused is on spiritual matters. He did not have an appetite for the material and the temporal things, the passing things of this world, like his brother Esau. He, and he, like his brother Esau, he did not despise the spiritual things. Esau actually despised his birthright. So Jacob can be commended, if not for his manipulation of his brother, at least for his earnest coveting of that which was best. He chose the best part. He chose the best gift. His appetite was for the things of God. Now, some commentators have even strongly suggested that Jacob's behavior was justified. Let's see what I wanted to put up here. They say that Jacob already knew Esau's attitude toward the birthright. And, and its responsibilities and all of its privileges. And that Jacob already knew that Esau was disinterested in spiritual matters as well as taking on the family responsibilities, you know, the, the estate responsibilities. After all, he was always out in the field playing, right? Hunting and, and 
tending to all that he, that went on out in the field. He had no concern for staying at home and taking care of the estate matters, and that Jacob knew this. So the commentators suggest that from the conversation of Esau and Jacob in this particular scene, they had apparently discussed the matter of the birthright many times before. And therefore, it was no big surprise to Esau that Jacob desired it. Esau knew that Jacob desired his birthright. Both boys probably also knew about the prophecy that had been given to their mother by the Lord, that the younger would serve the elder, which was a prophecy that the younger would gain the birthright. Well, if all this is true, then Esau was not really so much a victim of circumstances. He truly did not give a flip, as you might say. He didn't give a flip about the birthright, just as it says at the end of verse 34. What does it say, the last thing in this chapter? Esau despised his birthright. If Esau was so famished that he was about to die as he stated in response to Jacob's proposal, then he would not, as I mentioned before, he would not have been so long-winded in his discussion with Jacob. And certainly, think about this, there were many servants. Isaac was very wealthy. It was speculated that Abraham had something like a thousand servants, so we know Isaac had many, many servants. There were servants easily available who would have been more than happy to fetch Esau something to eat. Would you not agree? Or he could have gone to his mother. He simply wanted that red stew because it smelled so good and it appealed to the lust of his eyes due to its red color. He was, you see, he was as forthright and as focused on the beans as Jacob was forthright and focused on the birthright. Both brothers knew exactly what they wanted, and both brothers got exactly what they wanted. So those who support Jacob's actions say that he was wise in selecting the right time to gain the birthright, and that he was wise in immediately sealing the bargain uh, with Esau's oath. That's what we'll look at next. Uh, he asked him to do that in verse 33, to seal the oath, seal the bargain with an oath. Now, in support of Jacob, Jacob, Dr. Henry Morris points out that while Scripture does condemn very strongly, Scripture condemns Esau. You can read about it in uh, Genesis 25, 34, where it says he despised his birthright. And again, over in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 16 and 17. We'll talk about that verse, those verses in a little while. Scripture very strongly condemns Esau. But Scripture does not have one word of condemnation to say about Jacob. So... Think about that. That's interesting. Not one word of condemnation against Jacob. All right, let's look at foolish and fatal. This is our third section. For this, we'll look at verses 32 to 34. And Esau said, this is after Jacob said, Sell me this day thy birthright. And Esau said, Behold, I am at the point to die. And what profit shall this birthright do to me? 
And Jacob said, Swear to me this day. And he swore unto him. And he sold his birthright unto Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and pottage of lentils, and he did eat and drink and rose up and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Probably no one has been as surprised at Esau's answer to this birthright proposal as Jacob himself was. Most likely, he did not think that Esau would actually accept this trade-off. After all, it was a pretty pathetic exchange. I mean, you have to admit that. A bowl of beans for a birthright. But Esau, driven by his appetite, and apparently, you know, so apathetic towards spiritual matters, was ready to agree to this swap, saying that a dying man... I mean, he really was <laughs> exaggerating. But that a dying man has no need for a birthright. What he had need for was food, nourishment, physical nourishment. He saw no profit in the birthright when he was about to starve to death, which, of course, was not true. Esau, representing the natural man, you know, the carnal man, the unsaved man, he lived for what? The here and now. He lived for today. He had no vision for the future, much less the eternal. And that's how the flesh is. That's how the carnal man is. It lives for the pleasures that it can gain now. Esau, like most people in the world, did not realize that the birthright was actually more profit to him in death. You know, even if he had died, the birthright would have been more valuable to him than was all... than than there was in all of physical life. Because the birthright that he would have inherited if he hadn't sold it from Abraham and Isaac had to do with all of eternity. So he swapped the temporary for the eternal. His willingness to so easily forfeit his birthright shows just how irresponsible and spiritually insensitive he really was. He merely followed the pleasure of the moment. He was totally focused on this world and its material benefits to his flesh. His responsibility to his family, his responsibility to his father, his responsibility to his grandfather, and to the God of his, for, the God of his forefathers, you know, to God, all of that didn't matter to him. All that matters was, was himself, his flesh, his own needs, his own wants, his own pleasures, his own desires. Dr. John MacArthur, in his commentary on the book of Hebrews, he made the following comments about Esau. He said, quote, Perhaps the saddest and most godless person in Scripture outside of Judas is Esau. On the surface, their acts against God do not seem as wicked as those of many brutal and heartless pagans, but the Bible strongly condemns them. You know why? They had great light. They had every possible opportunity, as much as any person in their times, of knowing and following God. They knew his word. They had heard his promises. They had seen his miracles. And they had had fellowship with his people. Yet, with determined willfulness... They turned their backs on God and the things of God. End of quote. 
just think about all the light of truth that Esau had access to just within his family. You know, we can be sure that that he and Jacob both, as young children, heard their grandfather Abraham. Remember how old were they when Abraham died? Fifteen. So until they were 15, they knew their grandfather. So they, as young children, would have heard their grandfather Abraham tell them of the change that the Lord God had made in his life when God had first spoken to him in Ur of the Chaldees. He would have told, Abraham would have told his twin grandsons how he had turned from, from worshiping the false idols of this world who had never satisfied him. To worshiping the one and only true and living God. He would have told his grandsons how God not only spoke to him on numerous occasions, but even met with him personally. He would have told how the Lord had made many predictions to him, which had already come to pass, just as he had said, such as the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, and such as the birth of the boy's own father, Isaac, who was born miraculously from their old uh, reproductively dead bodies, you know, the, the dead body of his grandmother and of himself, his grandfather. And Abraham also, of course, would have included the account of Mount Moriah and how very brave and obedient their father Isaac had been. He would have told them, just as he had told Isaac, that one day God himself would provide the true lamb who would lay down his life for the sins of mankind. And he would tell them the great news of, of how privileged their family was, that God had chosen their own grandfather and their own father to carry on the line of people to whom God had made all kinds of special promises, including the promise that the Redeemer was to come through them. I mean, they, they came from the line of Adam and Seth and Enos and Canaan and Mahaliel and Jared and Enoch and Methuselah and Lamech and Noah down to Abraham and, and Isaac. And what a privileged lineage they had. And then the boy's father, Isaac, would have likewise been able to tell his sons all about God and how powerful and faithful and wonderful God is. And Isaac would have told his sons how he had felt on Mount Moriah and how he had felt while he waited for God to lead old Eliezer to their mother and how he had prayed specifically, how Eliezer had prayed specifically for a sign to know which woman was to be Isaac's wife. And he would have told them with Rebecca right there. You know, confirming everything as these boys were young and hearing these stories from their parents. He would have told them uh, how Rebecca had been a most specific answer to Eliezer's prayer when she not only offered him water to drink, but then also watered the ten camels as well. And of course, the boys would have heard the account of their mother's inability to conceive and how after 20 years of praying... God miraculously opened her womb and gave them not just one son, but two. Both boys, you see, would have heard these same stories all their lives. But in one's heart, 
nothing was stirred, while at the same time a longing, longing desire to be like Abraham and to be like Isaac was growing in the heart of the other. Esau preferred the gratification of his flesh over the blessings of God. So in his momentary hunger for a pot of beans, he relinquished the present and future privileges which were contained in being the firstborn. It's very, very sad. And there are many today in the world like Esau. We have many Esau's because you think about it, we actually in our world today have a whole lot more light about the truth of God and about the truth of his son than Esau had. He was very privileged. You just hear what I went through, all that he heard from Abraham and, and, uh, and Isaac. But we have even more than he had because he didn't even have one page of written scripture. And what do we have? We have the whole book, the full counsel. We have everything, not only all the stories about Abraham and Isaac, but uh, we have all the way back to Adam. And, uh, well, even further than that, we have all the way back to the creation of the world. And we have also um, the, everything else, all of history future. We, we have, including, you know, in the gospel accounts, we have the account of the actual coming of the Redeemer, the seed of the woman, the Lord's first coming. And we have the record of his substitutionary death on the cross and his burial and his resurrection on the third day. And we even have the account of what will yet occur in the future, preceding and following the Lord's second coming. So do we have a lot of light? Absolutely. And yet, that's the second coming there. Yet with all that revelation and with all the access that we have, especially in the United States of America, of hearing the word of God proclaimed not only, you know, in pulpits, but on radio and television and all the opportunities that we have to go to good Bible believing churches and to benefit from just a vast amount of biblical resources. I mean, just go up a couple blocks to the carpenter shop. Do you think people in other countries have anything like that at all? The access we have to, to, to Bibles and to commentaries on the Bibles and to Christian periodicals and magazines and uh, uh, Christian books. Our land is full, absolutely full of, of ways to know God through his word. And yet our land is also full of those who prefer the carnal pleasures like Esau rather than the spiritual joys. There are masses of people who put earthly advantages, advantages over and above eternal riches and who choose physical gratification to the salvation of their souls. That's sad. That's a tragedy. And even when you give them the gospel... So many are just really apathetic. Esau asked the question, what profit shall this birthright be to me? But you know what the much more accurate question is? 
the one that Jesus asked when he said, For what shall it profit a man if he gain, shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? That's the question. What did Esau exchange for his own soul? Right. Um, the momentary fleeting pleasure of the flesh. He wanted to feed his body with a measly pot of red beans. And millions upon millions upon millions have done exactly the same thing. Have they not? It might not have been a pot of beans. It might have been, as you saw some of the transparencies earlier, it might, have, it might be booze for the birthright. It might be um, business for the birthright. It might be the box, the idiot box for the birthright. Well, seizing upon the moment, Jacob quickly sought to cash in on his brother's folly. In just three words, as I told you before, in the Hebrew, he said, Swear to me this day at once in other words uh, because he knew that Esau's oath if he swore and gave an oath that would consummate that contract Jacob was taking hold of his brother's heel just as his birth action and also just as his name had predicted remember what his name meant heel catcher or supplanter and he was living up to that name but of course Esau did not have to swear to anything did he did he have to do this I mean what, what could he have said he could have said oh wait a minute I was really just exaggerating you know I would never sell my birthright no matter how tantalizing that red stuff smells I'll just go to mother I'm sure she'll fix me something he could have done that easy Easily. However, we know that's not what he did. That's not what happened. Instead, Esau, the oldest son of the only God-chosen family on earth and the heir to the covenant, which offered him a direct link to the Messiah and a place of great honor among God's people. I mean, who knows? His name might have been in Hebrews chapter 11 if he hadn't lived the way he did. And... Uh, to it, also to all the priestly rights over his significant family, he proved the ungodliness of his heart by selling such a priceless birthright for a simple meal of red lentil stew. He made his vow, he took an oath to Jacob, and in doing so, he gave up eternal glories for present desires. You know, it's in the little things of life, such as the desire for a pot of beans. It's in the little things of life that people really show where their, their priorities are and how real or unreal God and his promises are to them. I mean, if you don't believe that, just ask some women to come to Bible study and see what excuses you get, okay? So Esau swore to the contract. He sold his birthright for a morsel of meat, as it says in Hebrews 12:16. You might want to flip over there. Just take a look at Hebrews 12, verses 16 and 17. 
It says in, in that passage that he sold the birthright for a morsel of meat. Now we say, oh, well, wait a minute, we thought it was beans. But, you know, in the scripture, the word meat is used for food. In this case, we know it was not meat at all. It was red lentils. It was beans. So already then, the elder brother was becoming subservient to the younger. You see that? God's prophecy is beginning to be fulfilled. The elder is becoming subservient to the younger because he just sold the younger his birthright. And the great imbalance of this, you might want to keep one finger there in Hebrews and, and the other finger over in Genesis 25. But the imbalance of this situation is made apparent by the structure of verses 33 and 34 where it says, He, meaning Esau, sold to Jacob... And then it says, then Jacob gave to Esau. You see, that which was swapped when the one sold and the other gave is really stunning in its inequity. What they were swapping here was all the treasured rights of the inheritance for one meal. I mean, he got a little bread with it, okay? He's got some water and some bread and a pot of beans. So it leaves us wondering, really, at Jacob's forthrightness and his focus. And it also, even more amazingly, leaves us wondering at Esau's folly. And that folly is, is really clearly seen in the four verbs which tell us about the activity of Esau during this scene. When Jacob placed before his brother some bread and the bowl of red pottage and obviously some something to drink we are told look four verbs that Esau did eat and drink and rose up and went his way eat drink and be merry could be the motto written over Esau's life just as it was written it could be written or was written over the rich farmer in Christ's parable. And what did God call that rich farmer? You know, the one who said, I will pull down my barns and build greater, and there will I bestow all my fruits and my goods, and I will say to my soul, Soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. What did God say to that rich farmer? Thou fool. This night thy soul shall be required of thee. That's the same motto that could be written over Esau. Eat, drink, and be merry. And what does God call him? Thou fool. But that was the that, that sums up not only Esau's character, but his philosophy of life. He was a hedonist. Hedonists live for the pleasure of the moment only. Eat, drink, and be merry. They give no thought for their eternal future. All those who have no time for God, no place for his word, no fellowship with his people, and see no need for his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, they are no better than Esau who despised his birthright. His appetites had mastery over him because he was a slave to his own lusts. 
He was a prisoner to his sins. We see Esau's lack of concern for what he did by his simple action of eating and drinking and then rising up and walking away. There's no indication here of regret for what he had done. It's interesting to notice also that it says he went his own way. You notice that? Look at verse 34. It doesn't have the word own, but that's implied. He did eat and drink and rose up and went which way? His way. And that's very true. He went his way. He didn't go God's way. He went his way. Esau, just like Judas, went his own way. That's what it says about Judas in Luke 24, verse 4, that he went his own way, which implies he went his way rather than the way of God. It is a fatal way to go, to go your own way. And it is a foolish way to go. There's a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof is what? Death. Way of destruction and death. So it's a foolish way to go, especially for those who have uh, been given so much light, so much truth, and yet they prefer the darkness because they love their sin. They love to feed their flesh. The author of Hebrews, now you've got your finger there, okay? Go over to where I told you to look up, Hebrews 12, 16. The author of Hebrews tells us that Esau was both an immoral and a godless person. He uses the words in the King James, a uh, fornicator. He was a fornicator and he was profane, which means he was immoral and he was godless. That means he had no ethics He had no scruples. He had no regard for good or for truth. He had no reverence for God and the things of God. In other words, he was a totally worldly, carnal person. And actually, in that passage in Hebrews, Christians, Christian Jews, are warned to be on guard that no Esau type of person would get into their churches and contaminate the body, the body of Christ. So that's all I'm going to say about Esau until, you know, we get into some later chapters and discuss them, especially in chapter 27. But Esau, you know, the final commentary on his life is he died, he was lost, and he went to hell. It's a very, very sad case. As Dr. MacArthur says, probably second in tragic tragedy only to the life of Judas. But one last point I wish to readdress is with regard to Jacob. Let's go back to the younger son. Although Jacob was not exactly a model of integrity in this scene, at least he put a high value on the things of the Lord God. The birthright was most, most precious to him. His sin, you see, was not that of greed. He didn't care about the the wealth of what he would get from his father. And it really wasn't a sin of blackmail. Or even here, it wasn't even a sin of purposeful deception. Because he he didn't deceive Esau at all. He clearly told Esau what he wanted. Esau knew what he was doing. So rather, Jacob's sin, as we said earlier, was that of running ahead of God instead of waiting on God to orchestrate the the transfer of the birthright in his way and in his time. 
Jacob's sin was really a lack of faith in the sovereignty of God because he felt like he had to help God out with fulfilling his own word. But God could forgive such a sin as that, just as he had done it in the lives of Abraham and Sarah. Because, you see, God knew that Jacob's heart was focused in the right direction. God knew that Jacob had a desire for the birthright, and he had a desire for the blessing, which he also gets in chapter 27. God knew that Jacob was on the right path, even if he did need some educating about his methods. However, just as Abraham and Sarah had to live with the consequences of what they did, you know, when they took matters into their own hands by using Hagar, and they had to live with the consequences of all that, so would Jacob have to live with the consequences of taking the birthright situation into his own hands rather than entrusting the situation to God's providential care. And what he did here in this scene really only led to further estrangement from his brother. I mean, it certainly didn't bring the two boys closer together, and we'll see this only aggravated the situation in chapter 27 when it got so bad that Esau actually wanted to kill Jacob, and Jacob had to leave his mother and father and brother, had to leave his family, and would never even really see his mother again. So he did have to live with the consequences of his sin in running ahead of God. Well, next week, Lord willing, now we only have one more Bible study, and then April 2nd, remember, is our Resurrection Day break, our spring break. So April 2nd, we do not have Bible study. But next week, Lord willing, we're going to refocus on Isaac and look at the only chapter which is really dedicated to Isaac alone. Because every other time we look at Isaac, he's with somebody else, and sort of he's the passive person. You know, Abraham overpowers him, or Rebekah overpowers him. Later on, Jacob overpowers him. But in chapter 26, Isaac is the focus. All right? Let's close in a word of prayer.